Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome back to Forma, a podcast featuring conversations with authors, teachers, creators, and community leaders who are carefully contemplating the nature and practice of classical education and the arts. I am David Kern, and on this week's episode, I am very excited to bring you an interview that I conducted uh, with Karen Swallow Pryor. She has a new book coming out called On Reading Well, Finding the Good Life Through Great Books. It is a wonderful book. And uh, Karen is professor of English at Liberty University, where she has won multiple teaching awards. Her writing has appeared at Christianity Today, The Atlantic, The Washington Post, First Things, Vox, Think Christian, Books and Culture, and other places. And she's the author also of Booked, Literature in the Soul of Me, which came out in 2012, and Fierce Convictions, The Extraordinary Life of Hannah Moore, Poet, Reformer, Abolitionist, which came out in 2014. You can learn a lot more about Karen over at karenswallowprior.com. You can find some of the articles that she has written about and possibly even find her speaking at an event near you. She's also on Twitter at KS Pryor and on Instagram at Karen Swallow Pryor if you care to follow her at one of those two places. In this interview, we talked a lot about the book, the, the origin of her book on reading well. And this is a book that... I am very intrigued by the concept of, um, and I think it fits in extraordinarily well with some of the things that we are trying to accomplish here at Circe. It is a book that has 12 chapters in it, and each of those chapters is related to one of the virtues. So in part one, it's on the cardinal virtues, and she writes she writes about prudence, temperance, justice, and courage, and she writes about those virtues from the context or with the with an eye on a particular story. So, for example, the chapter on courage is also a chapter about the adventures of Huckleberry Finn by Mark Twain. The chapter on temperance is 
also a chapter about the great Gatsby by Fitzgerald and so forth. She also talks about in part two, the theological virtues where she talks about faith, hope, and love. And then in part three, she talks about the heavenly virtues and she writes about chastity, diligence, patience, kindness, and humility. You'll recognize many of the books uh, besides the ones I just mentioned and many of the authors. Uh, there's Dickens, there's Henry Fielding, there's Shusaku Endo and Cormac McCarthy, Leo, Tolst- Leo Tolstoy and Edith Wharton, John Bunyan, Jane Austen, George Saunders, and Flannery O'Connor. So if you care about books and the role that they can play in our lives and especially in the lives of our students, I think you will very much enjoy On Reading Well. With that, I'm going to kick it right over to my interview with Karen Swallow Pryor. Thank you for listening and I hope you enjoy it. First of all, thank you for, for joining the show, for being a part of our podcast. We really appreciate you being here. Well, thank you for having me. Um, you have a new book coming out on reading well, finding the good life through great books. And I was um, somehow sneaky enough to get an advanced reading copy. And uh, I've really enjoyed it. I've, I've, I'm thinking that I might have to, to um, curate some of my reading over this fall by filling in gaps, like books that I haven't read either recently or ever based on the chapters in your book. So um, <laughs> I read the chapters first on books that I'd read, but there's a few that I need to go back and read again. I like, I haven't read a tale of two cities in forever and um, I haven't read persuasion at all, which is, might be a, um, might be a, might be a gap. That might be like a vice that I haven't read persuasion. yet. <laughs> oh, there are so many books that I haven't read. I mean, it's just, that's the nature of books. So never feel guilty for the books that you haven't read. Only feel guilty for the, about the books that you have read. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, it's funny because I was, um, I was sitting in a chair next to my bookshelves last night late and I was, I was reading and, and enjoy reading the chapter on Huckleberry Finn actually. And as I'm sitting there, I stopped for some reason and I turned and looked and there was a whole shelf of books. And I looked, I looked there and I thought, I want to read that. Oh, I need to read that too. And it was just this whole shelf of books that I had gotten recently and I decided that I needed to read them. And then I thought, you know, one of the things that's really annoying about being a reader is that people keep writing books. It's just (laughs) really annoying. (laughs) So how did you, how did you choose what books to, to, um, to put in this book? I mean, were these just ones that you loved or were they books that you felt like they had something to say specifically about the virtue that you needed to talk about in the chapter? Well, it's really both. I mean, I started out with a long list of books that I wanted to write about. And actually, actually, now I have to go back even a little further. Um, this, the way that this book took shape is so different from the original proposal that I submitted to my publisher and that they approved, um, which kind of tells a little bit about the writing process, which might be of interest to some of your listeners. Um, after my proposal was approved and the contract was signed and everything was ready to go, my editor suggested that I, um, actually, I think it was before it was approved, the final proposal, he suggested I put in a line about virtue and practicing virtue. So I did. And Mm -hmm. so by the time I sat down to start writing the book, I thought, well, I better look into virtue a little bit more because, (laughs) you know, we all heard of the virtues, but most us don't know that much about them, including myself. And I started researching them and I thought, and it's changed the entire structure and approach. I said, I'm going to frame this whole book around the virtues because Mm. they're fascinating and I don't know enough about them. And I want, I want to know more and I want everyone else to know more. Mm. So then I had to go through, um, because my original proposal was to have very short chapters on about 24, 25 different works of literature Mm. around different themes. 
And so I just had to go from that list and then whittle it down and then add some others. Because once I came up with a list of virtues that I wanted to cover, then yes, I had to pick works that fit in with them. And of course, I'm sure there are countless works that could be, could you could focus these virtues on, but sure. they also had to be works that I love or at least are fam- am familiar with. Um, right, right. And so, yeah, it was. It really was a puzzle. It was, and it, and it took a long time for the pieces to fall into place. Was it a painful process? Like, did you feel like you were having to throw out? Well, not throw out, but you know, leave out books that you love that you would have loved yeah, to explore. Yeah, that part. That there were some, there are at least as many books that I wanted to write about um, that I did write about, and so um, that part was painful. Um, but hey, you know. I can always write another book. <laughs> <laughs> you can write, yeah, the, the sequel. Yes. Uh, the age of sequels, right? So what is what are some books then that you left out that you'd wish you'd written about? Oh, let's see. Um, um, Heart of Darkness was one oh, that I really okay. wanted to write about. George Orwell's 1984. Um, see, now I'm giving my whole next book away. <laughs> um, uh, All right, off- I'd say no more then. <laughs> no, no, no. Okay, keeps, then we'll, keeps, we'll leave it at that, it. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> was there a book... Um, I hadn't thought about this until just the second. Is there a book in here that well, that you ended up including that you were sort of surprised that you ended up writing about? Or that maybe you came to love more through the process of writing this book? That you... Pil- yes, Pilgrim's Progress. <laughs> that oh. was the last book that I um, picked. I don't, it wasn't the one, I don't think it was the last one I wrote about. It was the ba- last one that I picked because I could not find a book that I that really addressed diligence very well that I could think of. Um, and I actually, I was speaking somewhere and at dinner with my hosts and was talking about how I hadn't picked a book for diligence. And so this woman said, Pilgrim's Progress. And I was hmm. like, hmm, that's really an obvious choice. <laughs> um, I'm just not a big fan of Pilgrim's Progress, to be totally honest. <laughs> yeah, so, like probably many people. Right. right. I, think, I feel like people who are big literature lovers have problems with Pilgrim's uh, Progress. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, Pilgrim's Regress, I, that would be a problem. <laughs> but um, I mean, it wasn't in it, but it, it was good for me because it. Um, I ended up really liking talking about not just the story Pilgrim's Progress, but forcing myself to talk about how the book is um, more complex than it would seem and, and mm. talk about the nature of allegory and the nature of allegorical language and, yeah. um, and literary interpretation. So I got really excited about that part uh, as I was writing it, but it was a little bit of a, a little bit of a hardship in the first part, talking about the story and, um, and figuring out how to make it interesting to both those who have read it before and those who haven't. Yeah. Did you purposefully avoid um, books written before like the history of Tom Jones? I mean, because like there's not Shakespeare or Iliad or the Odyssey books like that. Well, this is a, this is a good, uh, that's a good question. And it ties into another question that I have too, about why I have mainly dead white men (laughs) that I'm writing about. Um, Someday I'm going to write a book called In Praise of Dead White Men. (laughs) Um, But, um, you know, my specialty, 
uh, my area of specialty is 18th century British literature. So that's like okay. all dead white men, yeah, but not yeah. the really old dead white men. Right. <laughs> um, and so, and within that also my specialty is the English novels. So that goes right. into the 19th century. So that's right. always my starting point. And then, um, so it, it's all novels. I mean, my first book included poetry and so forth, but all of these are novels. Um, they're not all 18th century and they're not all British, but that's where I start. And I'm always stretching myself when I read American literature or something contemporary. Um, and so, because my love, I mean, my, my comfort food in <laughs> literature is, you know, what I read for fun are 19th century novels and what I teach is 18th century um, yeah, that's more academic for me. So, right, right. Um, so it's just my area of specialty. I don't teach world literature. I don't really teach the classics. I teach some classic um, philosophy and poetics, but I don't teach mm. the classic works of literature. So I just feel less comfortable writing about them, even though I did stretch myself here. It was just in different directions. Hmm. Now that you met, now that you're talking about diligence, I, I would, it just popped into my head that if you were writing about the ancients, you could have gone with the, like the Odyssey or something for, for diligence. Well, thanks for telling me now. Yeah, I know, right. <laughs> no. yeah that act, that would have been great. Um, but I think, but th by that point I had, um, I was definitely teaching about fiction. I, right, I mean, right. writing about fiction in the book. Right. So, uh, right. well, that is fiction, but it's poetry. So yeah. Sure. sure. I understand. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, um, so you chose, so the books organize part one's the cardinal virtues, part two is the theological virtues and part three is the heavenly virtues. And so that structure, um, I imagine that it forced you to think very specifically about the stories as you were writing. So one of the things I noticed is that you spend quite a bit of time in each chapter well, right. It makes sense that you do this, but, but, um, defining the virtues. So when you, you mentioned that the virtues were sort of new, well, not new to you, but maybe you had to do some studying on them and, um, right. So what did that look like? Well, say, say you were looking into, you know, diligence, as you mentioned, or, or kindness or something like that. Did you, were you, how, what did that study look like? And what, what did you learn that you didn't know before about those? I and mean, that's, how can you answer that question in in a couple of sentences, right? <laughs> right, right. Um, so, yeah, I first had to pick the virtues, and and the four cardinal virtues were easy. That list is pretty stable throughout history, but but there are so many different lists of virtues and um and and different categories for them because you'll find that like in in the roman virtues are much have much more to do with citizenship and duties. I mean, there are long lists of virtues that you can find. So there were, you know, the, the cardinal virtues and, um, and then some of the, um, Christian or heavenly virtues, uh, there are seven of those, two of them are also cardinal ones. So there's overlap there. Um, but there were so, so many other virtues that I wanted to write about and could have written about, but I couldn't fit them into sort of neat categories. So the categories had to do also with the virtues that I chose. Um, so just finding the list, you know, finding the categories that I was going to use um, was a challenging part. And, um, and then, yes, I had to study them in most cases to first before I could figure out what work of literature I would choose to go with them. So I think simply probably what I discovered most um, was, and this, this 
isn't as clear in every the case of every virtue, but is just thinking about how the virtue, each virtue is a mean or a moderation between the extremes of excess and deficiency mm. and figuring out, you know, what the corresponding vices are or the excess or deficiency. Um, and then how that can be shown in the work that I um, ended up choosing for it. I think the easiest one or the clearest one to do that was, was Huckleberry Finn because courage is such an interesting virtue. Um, and it's a much clearer once I studied the definition of it to see how, you know, the excess of rashness and the deficiency of cowardice are very easy to see and how courage is that moderation between the two because hmm. it's so easy to be reckless and daring and do foolish things that entail great risk. We see that all around us. And we also see a lot of cowardice, the exact opposite. Hmm. But courage is so interesting because it avoids those two extremes um, and and of course, always, like all the virtues, has to be done in the pursuit of some good. And I think that was the virtue that kind of clarified all the others for me because it was just easier to see how um, the extremes are so easy to fall into and so rampant all around us. Hmm. Um, and all of the virtues operate that way. They're all, you know, mediate between two extremes um, and boy, that's hard as a human being to do. We, we just love to, to escape to the margins because it's so much easier and so much more black and white there. Yeah. Speaking of, I guess, balance, did you, do you, did you find yourself having to, well, I guess I'm, I'm trying to think of how to, how to say this. Um, did you find yourself sometimes thinking about literature or asking your readers to think about literature in a way that was sort of utilitarian, like you should read literature because it's going to produce this in you or yourself yeah. or your students, as opposed to sort of, you know, following Lewis's advice and kind of letting it be what it is. Did you, did you find you had to strike a balance between those compete? Well, seemingly competing um, perspectives? No, that's, that's really a great question because um, that's, exactly what I didn't want to do, but really the entire premise of this book kind of leans that way, right? Yeah, like it sort of suggests that it's, yeah, that yeah. literature does that. Yeah. Right. And it does. So right, it, yeah. it really was a, a hard balance to strike um, because we don't want to just simply uh, read books to get moral lessons um, because we could just listen to a sermon, obviously, or you know, read a moral lesson, and, and that's not how literature operates. So I, um, so it was a difficult balance, and one I um, had to strive for throughout uh, the process of writing the book. And of course, that's why I tried to, and and I don't know if I always did as much to my satisfaction to focus on form and the aesthetic experience. Um, mm. And, but I think that that's also something that many readers in my target audience uh, are probably, you know, that's new to them. And so, um, so mm. I, I hope I reached the goal in that sense of, of just, you know, helping readers who maybe who aren't English majors or literature scholars to right. be yeah. more attentive to form and the aesthetic experience. Uh, at the same time that they're 
I mean, I've had so much response from my, from early readers of the launch team and so forth from people who, um, for whom reading, getting moral lessons out of fiction is actually a new thing. Hmm. And so it's, yeah, it's, it's actually, just purely yeah. for enjoyment. Yeah, you're right. Exactly. And so then they just read whatever, you know, pulp fiction or whatever. And so I yeah. think, I think I may have gotten it right for the kind of readers that I was hoping to reach who actually, who, who didn't know fiction could be so edifying and good just on that basis. So, um, yeah. Did, do you, th- I mean, would you say that you, the title of the book is on reading well, and would you say that that is sort of part of what reading well looks like is striking that balance as a reader in terms of how you approach a book? Yes, exactly. I mean, the, the balance really is in the, in the most basic terms um, is, you know, good literature is good in both form and content uh, and they can't really be separated and reading well attends to both of those, both the content and the form. Um, you know, in literary criticism, you often, you usually see, again, a tendency toward one extreme or another, an extreme mm-hmm. aestheticism that attends only to form or an extreme moralism that attends only to the lesson. Um, and I think as a good reader, and I think even, you know, as a Christian reader, um, that we want to balance those things, just like speaking the truth in love is an paying equal attention to the content and the form. Truth is the content and love is the form. So you talked about how the virtues are sort of balances between two extremes. Would you say then that what you're describing is vir- like, can you read virtuously? Um, yes. And I actually, in the introductory chapter, um, I really try to focus on that. Like to me, reading well, it, it, you know, I use those terms interchangeably. Reading well is reading virtuously. Um, and, you know, which brings up another, another point is that just even the word virtue or doing something virtuously has such a prudish puritanical. Yeah, I was going to ask about that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The connotation of it has just been. Have you I run into, have you run into negative response to that where people are just like, I don't know. Too, too, um, all this virtue talk is too uh, prescriptive or something. Well, actually no. And I think, you know, my, um, I think the publisher um, did a really good job because my the titles that I submitted as my you know suggestions for the the title or the t- subtitle of the book included the word virtue in it in various forms um, and I know uh, one of my maybe it was a student way back before this was the advanced reading copy was even out I, my students when I told them the title um, they said oh, it doesn't mention virtue and I said yeah I know that's sort of a drawback because people who want to read about virtue will kind of miss that in the title although people who know the phrase the good life will will know what that means um, but I so I think not having the word virtue in the title ends up being a better decision because because the right people will still be drawn to it but I think that word virtue in the title might have put a lot of people off so yeah. hopefully they just start reading and they're sucked in before they realize what they, what they signed up for. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, we've, we, we talk a lot about virtue around here and we always discuss like, when should that word actually be used in a title or in a conference name or. Yeah. Very, like if, it really does kind of depend partly on who you're trying to reach, but it, it's more complicated than I think people who already buy into the concept of virtues as things that we should be helping our student students work towards attaining. Like if you already believe in that, 
it's going to probably, it probably comes as a surprise that you have to think about when you're going to use the word. Right. Right. I mean, it just, it's so, it's so sad. It has such negative connotations to it. Um, and that's largely because we've, we've narrowed the definition to mean basically the virginity of women, <laughs> um, in, you know, at least in my evangelical circles, that's what virtue means. And it's so, or the Proverbs 31 meaning is woman, uh, is its broadest meaning. And that's just a real shame because, uh, we're all called to, be excellent and to have virtue. That's really interesting that you note that, that virtue tends to be associated primarily in our day and perhaps most especially in evangelical Christianity with, you know, feminine virtues, I guess, with women. Mm -hmm. But in your book, you talk a lot about, just for the sake of conversation, what we'll call masculine virtues, I guess. I don't, that feels sure. uncomfortable to say, but you know, just for the sake of conversation. So like you talk about courage and you use a lot of male character examples. Did, have you, I mean, was that conscious or is that just something that like, were you consciously trying to say virtue is more than, you know, these things that Proverbs 31 and the things that are commonly talked about in the church and that they do apply to everybody in all these different contexts and that there are virtues that, like we should be thinking about this for men as well. Was that conscious or did that just sort of? Um, well, th let me answer that two ways. I mean, it was conscious in the sense that I knew that that was happening, although it wasn't, you know, it wasn't, I'm part of it again, goes back to my specialty is 18th century British literature, which is, you know, mainly dead white men. Um, <laughs> But, you know, it's interesting because the word virtue originally in Latin, I'm sure you know, means manliness. Like it comes from the same root word that means race or man. Mm -hmm. um, and so virtue meant manliness. And so because women didn't really count as people. <laughs> um, and so the things that <laughs> that made a man, made, yeah, make a person. Yeah. The things that, that make a, a human being which means man, mm -hmm. like a male person, yeah. um, excellent are the more masculine things. Um, and so it's interesting how that word has shifted from literally meaning manliness to applying to very, you know, female virtues. And so I was aware of that irony as I was writing, um, but this is the history of virtues um, mm -hmm. because it was men who were, seen to be the ones who could excel in human in being human. And, um, so I think, I think, I think, I think there's, go ahead. Yeah. Well, do you think that's played into what played into, um, sort of a change in the public, um, discussion about virtues, like, because they were always talked about by men for men, so to speak, um, that has led to them falling out of favor in public discourse? Well, I think um, that's a good question. Um, well, I think they've Maybe fallen out of fair. favor just because we're just, we're, we're, because we're, we're, well, and I, and I talk about this because we live in a time that's after virtue because we can't, you know, we can't, uh, we can't define human excellence because we don't know what human beings are for anymore. We don't believe in purpose or telos or any, you know, end toward which we were created. Um, so we can't even talk about what makes us excellent. Like if, if I don't know what, um, a pair of scissors is for, and I try to use it as a hammer, 
then I, I don't, it's, I'm going to say it's not excellent because it's not working right. Um, right. <laughs> and that's really how virtues work too. We don't know what's virtuous if we don't know what we're here for. So do you feel like a lot of the work that you're doing um, as a teacher, as a writer, as a reader um, is, is sort of the a project of definition in terms of defining, sort of trying to identify and define and explain what people are for? Um, that's, that's an interesting question. Um, I mean, when I teach, I mainly teach English majors and graduate students. And so, um, I'm approaching things a little bit differently. I mean, a lot of it's the same in how, uh, I write this book. I, tr I write it in some ways a, a lot like I teach. Um, but I do, I, you know, I, I do often when I'm teaching at every level, this isn't really an answer to your question, but it's just illuminated something to me. I'm constantly, yeah, go I'm, very, you want. <laughs> no, I, I'm really caught up with definitions. Like I'm always asking my students to define, you know, to define a term, to just look at what a word means before we can even discuss um, what goes beyond it. And mm -hmm. um, I find that a lot of the problems that we have today in reading and conversation is not only do we not agree on definitions, but people aren't even interested in in establishing a definition or at least understanding what the given one is and how and if it changes, how it's changed from something else. So um, I think it, there's an old, I don't know if it's an, you know if it's just apocryphal, but supposedly Confucius said that if there were he were asked to do one thing to make the world better, it would be to um, define terms or something like that. And there's so much wisdom in that because um, many of the discussions that I get in, involved in on social media and so forth, and uh, so much of the dissension and controversy, I think comes down to a failure to agree on terms and or at least understand right. what someone means by a certain term. So that took a little yeah. dire different direction than your original question. But um, <laughs> I do think that's a big part of our of our project today is to just define terms or at least try to. Yeah, I mean, even if we just knew how to, uh, to actually define the things we were talking about in public discourse on occasion, things would be a lot more polite. I don't know that social media is particularly uh, ideal for much definition though. <laughs> <laughs> Probably not. So what? when did you, did you grow up loving books? Yes, I did actually. Um, my first book, Booked Literature in the Soul of Me, which is uh, has a sort of similar structure to this book because each chapter is about a different work of literature, but um, it's focused around sort of my life story. Um, and uh, yes, I, I grew up loving books um, and playing library when I was a little girl and you know, my mother read to me constantly. And then I remember very vividly the day that I start, you know, that I could read out loud, read on my own, reading out loud, pointing at the, at the words on the page. Um, <laughs> so it was Dr. Seuss. <laughs> um, and uh, so books have just always been, you know, a central part of my life. And, uh, and so just, I majored in English in college and went on to grad school and, have never stopped reading and loving and teaching books. Would you describe yourself? Would you describe yourself as sort of like bookish? Um, however, well, they, however yeah. they mean by, whatever they yeah. mean by that word. Yeah, whatever they mean. I, yeah, I, I guess so. I mean, I'm not. Uh, I'm not like a wallflower sitting 
uh, in the corner all day by myself with a book. I'm not that kind of bookish. Um, and yeah. I'm not, you know, I'm not like, it wasn't like those... books were getting you through tormented stuff. Well, maybe in junior high. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but no, I just, I just loved the magic of books. Um, I mean, I, I just, some of the memories that I have from reading books as a, as a child and an adolescent, like those memories are more vivid in my mind than my real life experiences. So um, they were just very formative for me. Do you remember the first book that you were really inspired by that sort of really, really captured your imagination? Other um, than Dr. Seuss? Yeah. Um, I, let's see. I, there, there, um, I don't know if I can pick just one, but I would say probably the most, yeah. It would be The Black Stallion by Walter Farley. Mm. Um, I loved horses, so I read a lot of horse books. And I think that book is probably the first one I read that most made me feel like I was really, really there. Mm. Um, And yeah. So have you read Black Beauty? Yes. So Black Beauty or Black Stallion, which is better? Um. Well, I think they're sort of for different ages, aren't they? I think the I think so, yeah. Yeah, Black, Black Beauty is a little Black Beauty is um um This is a completely irrelevant question. Yeah, no, it's a good it's a good question. <laughs> just um, popped into my head. I'm no. I, I'm reading Black Beauty to my boys right now. They're 5 and 6. Oh. We're just sort of um, they're not, they're honestly, they're kind of bored. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, that's, I was going to say black beauty is more, even though it's, um, for young people or, or what it, it, it's really an adult book yeah, in the sense yeah. that it's, it has like, it's communicating a moral message mm-hmm. about animal welfare, which is really mm-hmm. important. Um, yeah, yeah. but the, the mad, I think the black stallion is, much, have you read that to your boys? I haven't read the black stallion yet. I should oh, do that. Oh, it's so, so good. <laughs> well, it's interesting because, so you just never know what kids are going to, that's true to love. Right. Like I've read, like I thought I've got a five and a six year old boy and I thought they'd like treasure Island more. And we've got half the way through that. And they were just sort of, not that into it. So we'll go back to that again later. You know, at that yeah, age, I'm, not, I'm yeah. not really like, we're not, I always tell them, we're not only reading these books because you like them, but I also am not going to, you know, force a six year old to sit through you know, every book. I want to make sure they, you know, they're, they're enjoying and able to really, their imaginations are able to kind of grasp and um, participate in what's going on. So. Yeah. Um, some of that 19th century literature is, you know, that's supposedly written for children is a little, you know, it's just a little Victorian, yeah, <laughs> like in a, in a bad way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Did you, um, so when did you know you wanted to, to teach literature? I mean, did you know that right away? I did not. And there's actually is a little bit of a funny story behind that. Um, cause you know, God is a, our God is a God of irony and I love it. But, um, I actually started out in college as a social work major because I wanted to help people (laughs) and I didn't want to, I didn't think I wanted to um, get a doctorate. Hmm. And uh, anyway, I, I, once I took uh, statistics, I realized I could not, I didn't want anything to do with that. And so I, one of my professors had actually, my freshman comp professor or or lit professor. uh, Yeah. It was my American literature professor that I took as a, 
English as a requirement, encouraged me to, to change, to, to switch to English. And I didn't think I would. And um, I didn't, I didn't know in high school, you know, I loved English and did well in it all through school, but it was not something that I knew could be taken seriously because to me, it was just something I enjoyed and it was easy. I didn't know people actually seriously studied it because, mm. because no one seemed to really stay, take it that seriously um, mm. in school. Um, and so when I realized you could approach it this totally different way, like really seriously and in a scholarly way, um, I decided to, to major in English, but I still, still was determined that there were two things my whole life. I, there were a lot of different things, dreams and aspirations I had as a little girl to be things, but two things I never wanted to be were a nurse or a teacher. <laughs> <laughs> like Laura Ingalls. Yeah. <laughs> oh, is that true of her? Well, I mean, that's in the, in the books. It's, she says, because you remember how Mary goes blind in the books? Yeah. And so Mary was always going to be the teacher, like for, for Ma. For and then, again, I only know this because I recently read one of the books for the kids. But then Laura has to become the teacher because Mary couldn't. And Laura doesn't want to become a teacher. She wants to be a teacher. That's right. That's right. She becomes a teacher because she's fulfilling the mission. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Just like, just like Laura. Yeah, no, no. Um, But anyway, so I got through when I, I graduated with my major in English and didn't know what I wanted to do and um, still went into a PhD program and still didn't know what, just wanted to study English more. And it wasn't until then I, all of my you know, classmates in the program were teaching English and I thought, well, I'll give that a try. Hmm. And so the first time that I began teaching English composition, it was actually in um, my university's night school for you know, returning learners. Um, I just fell in love. I was like, this is what I was created to do. I was created hmm. to teach. Hmm. And it was just you know, accidental, providential, both of those things, not by my own, anything <laughs> on my own, but I discovered what I, what I was made to do. So what, so what is it about teaching literature that you love? I mean, is it the interaction with the students? Is it the, the getting up there and talking about the books you love? Um, just getting to read professionally or (laughs) all of the above. I mean, um, I think, you know, in a way I did become a social worker because I do Mm. think that reading can change your life. Um, and so, we can talk about literature, um, but we also talk about life. One of the things that I used to say when I taught a lot of general education classes, which I, I don't teach that many anymore, um, but I used to, because t- those are filled with, you know, freshmen and sophomores who are just taking the class because they have to. Um, yeah, and I would, and yeah, yeah. And I, I would just tell them when at the beginning of the semester, because we didn't go over the syllabus and I have all these learning objectives on them that I'm required to put on there and I don't even care. I would, <laughs> I would tell my students. The life of a college professor. Right? Yes. I would just say, all I want for you from this class is I want you to leave this class loving life, literature, and God more than when you came in. Hmm. Um, and that that's that's all I want. I mean, so however much you love those things when you came in, I want you to love them more when you, Mm. when you leave. Um, and I think that, I think that all, I think for me anyway, just, they all go together. Um, I again, this is something that this is the whole trajectory of my first book booked about how, um, I mean, growing up, I, I loved books and the more, and I, I would read 
sort of books that most parents would never let their kids read. And I was exposed to all these different ideas and stories that most Christian parents would be horrified to know. Even you know, I was raised in a Christian home, but my parents let me read whatever I wanted to read. Um, but the rest of the world kind of frowned on those things. And so I felt like I had to choose between books and the life of the mind and God Hmm. Um, for the longest time until it wasn't really until grad school when I realized through the help of uh, an unbelieving liberal secularist professor that who helped me to understand um, through Christian history that it was, you know, that, that literature and Christian doctrine and belief go together. Um, and then reading other, you know, Christian writers after that, I came, I finally realized that I didn't, not only did I not have to choose between books and God, I, that they, you know, God is the creator of the word and words and language and our ability to use language and to read and appreciate literature is a reflection of his image in us. And they, they are, they go together. Um, and so, uh, that's how that's how I teach it. It because it it they do all go together. So you you just talked about how you wanted your students to leave the class, leaving what did you say, life, love, and liter or like uh, life, literature, and God a little bit more than when they started. Is that what you said? Yeah. So you know we have a lot of listeners who are you know teaching in schools or even homeschooling, and they you know the the parents or the teachers love literature. They've, and, they, and maybe perhaps even more than that, they value it um, for its academic and sort of life-changing merits. Um, but the idea of, and they want their students to learn to love literature, right? I think anybody who really values it and is in, the, in, a, in a teaching setting wants that. So what, how do you do that? How, how, what does that mean to you? Like, what does that mean? I don't necessarily mean practically speaking, but what does that mean about the goals you set for yourself or the way you interact with a book that, can ha- that you can help um, not just preserve a love of literature for kids who already have it um, or, tr- you, you know, try to find a little bit for the kids who don't, but to actually increase that for mm. even the kids who do. Like, how do you, how do you grow something like that? Well, I think um, especially with students who don't like literature or intimidated by it, I, I think we've done a lot to make it overly mysterious. Um, and I think, you know, I, I hope I'm not stepping on any, anybody's toes who are listening here, but, um, you know, so I teach, (laughs) I I teach college students. So, um, I get them fresh from the lower grades and see, you know, get to bear the bad fruit (laughs) of all the wrong ways of teaching. Um, and so I think, you know, so, so a lot of students come, thinking um, that there's some sort of hidden meaning that they've got to discover and, and that, mm-hmm. that only those who have the special dispensation or the special knowledge um, are able mm-hmm. to do. And since yeah. they don't have that, they can't do it. Yeah. Like they, so, they can only study in love literature if there's like somebody like a guide, like they, if they have a Virgil. Yeah. Right, 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 right. Um, and, and so they, they're intimidated by it. And uh, that's one thing. And then they've also been taught or developed, not intentionally taught, but a lot of approaches to teaching literature develop the habit of students only being concerned with the theme or the idea. And so they 
they get in the habit of going to spark notes or cliff notes and right, right. reading the summary and they don't they have not their their, their teachers have not cultivated the literary industrial complex stuff yeah right and and so they they are in the habit of just looking for that meaning instead of actually experiencing it aesthetically and mm-hmm. and understanding why reading a book or a poem the way that it is written is actually the meaning is captured in the form, mm-hmm. not just the, you know, the spark note summary. Mm-hmm. Um, and so one of the, so the, the things yeah, that I you, do, you can't separate theme and form is what you're saying. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and so I try to Im- help students see that they can read literature and can read well by doing a lot in the, in the class of just, looking at the words on the page together, talking about what the words are literally saying because they often don't even know what the words are literally saying. So it will read, say, you know, a stanza in a poem or just a line in a poem. And I'll say, what is this saying? And they will literally look up to the sky <laughs> and ponder. And I'm yeah. saying, no, no, yeah, no. I remember look, you said this in the book, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Look, look at the words. Like, what are those words actually literally saying? And yeah. then let's talk about the implication because, but they often skip that part. They just, they, because they've been taught to look for that mysterious meaning. Um, Which is or, floating up above them in the ether. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and so, so, the, so no wonder they feel intimidated by it because they feel like it's this thing out there that they can't grasp when really, you know what, the, in this 19th century poem, if you just looked up the words in the dictionary that you don't know what they mean, the poem would be clear to you. You too can use a dictionary, but they don't, they think it's yeah. some mysterious thing when it's just like, oh, I never heard this word before. Let me look it up and see what it means. Oh, now it makes sense. Um, so but, just, but it's of, also more than decoding, right? Oh, absolutely. But that's just where you have to start. You have right. to know what it literally says. And then you can talk about, oh, well, why does this connection work? What are, yeah. what, you know, what are the connotations yeah. of this metaphor? What, what right. else does this metaphor add that just saying it? Um, so it's just a matter of, you know, of doing things in in the proper order, understanding what it literally says, and then talking about that, and then the implications, and then, you know, having that idea in your mind that you then go out and like, oh, this connection really, oh, you know, um, my love really is like a red, red rose newly sprung in June or something. Um, why does that work? Uh, so, yeah. So one of the things that we find ourselves talking a lot about is or sorting through perhaps I got you know in various podcasts and events just in talking with friends things like that is the sort of you know is the idea of the theme authorial intention um, the background of the author what we think the author is trying to say so in your opinion as you're approaching a work of literature let's say you are approaching I just opened to chapter five so say you're approaching silence Endo's book um, are you, how much time and and or I guess at what point are you going to start trying to identify or help your students identify things like theme um, and things like authorial intent and, you know, start introducing a biography of teacher of, of um, the authors and things like that. Is yeah, that, that, are you, go ahead. That, that's a good, no, that's a good question. I mean, I, I, I think I, um, ideally we strive for a balance between text and context. Mm -hmm. Um, Again, talking about the moderation of the mean, I -hmm. definitely lean more toward text and I really try to discourage my students from doing, you know, 
biographical criticism um, or or at least understanding when it's a, more appropriate and less appropriate. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, of course, historical context matters a great deal as well. Um, but yeah, I think the starting... Like yeah. de decoding in some ways, right? Like if you can explain... It's like right. defining a word. If you can help a student see what's happening a little more vividly, then it's useful. Right. But whereas if you start with, with the text and then say, oh, well, you know, this word meant something different during this time, that makes sense. Or, oh, this is what was going on in the background. So this is what the reference is for. So to mm -hmm. me, context, historical context and author biography are ways to help us better understand the text, but it still is centered on the text. Um, as a work of art. Uh, so it, it's, it's tough to balance. And in some cases, I think it's the author's background is more or important than others. But, um, you know, and I, I do talk a little bit about Endo's um, life and his background, but, but it's really not even, I mean, the historical context that the book includes itself is important to understanding the story, but it's only to me, peripherally interesting um, to know Endo's own Catholic background. Right. So um, there's been something of a, I don't want to call it a debate. There's just been a conversation. We have a, well, okay. So what kind of questions do you think you should ask of a book when you're reading them? Like, are there certain questions that you would say you should not ask of a book that, that, that the kind of questions that don't allow them, allow the book to sort of be its own thing or that allow you, that keep you from, Again, to borrow Lewis's idea of like submitting to the work itself. Um, are there questions that you think that are, that keep you from doing that? Well, I, I, I haven't thought about that question before, so I <laughs> don't know, but I, the first, first and perhaps, no, no, the first and perhaps only one that comes to mind. The last question you should ever ask, if at all, is how does this make me hmm. feel? <laughs> um, not that I mean that can be a question that you ask, but but it should be in relationship to you know to always oh, the text trying to you know is this something that the text is is trying to manipulate or, or make me feel or something like that, not just you know like oh so I I will often uh, just to open up discussion in the classroom will ask my students about what the experience of reading something is like because I want them to know was it is it hard is it easy um, what's making it hard what's make, because I'm I'm tr I ask those questions because I'm trying to teach so, them how to read so you better so I want them to to be reflective right, okay. about the experience of the experience of reading not like how right so, the story so makes them okay so I see what you're saying there's a difference between explain to me how you feel about this is a sort of it's a very different question mm -hmm. than I guess is then act actually describe what the experience was like. Like these are, I mean, it can be a subjective thing. Right. Yeah. Experience of yeah. reading it. Right. Like, yeah. Um, and what's making this a difficult work for you to, to get into or an easy work or hard to understand or easy to understand. You know, so it's, it's more about reflecting on the experience. Do you think of that, reading that, that readers should make judgments of characters decisions in books? Absolutely. Yes. I mean, that's actually, that's, that is one of the, the, the real ethical values of literature is that um, literary fiction as opposed to bad fiction or, or, you know, instruction manuals or textbooks that what makes 
literary fiction or liter- literary writing of any kind literary is how it replicates our real life everyday experience by not hmm. telling us what to think. Like we, you know, we, we go through life, we encounter people at the post office or in line at the grocery store and we, there aren't, they don't have any signs. They don't have any, there are no cues telling us how to respond to them or how to judge them. We have to interpret, analyze, assess, and evaluate um, and make decisions based on what we see before us. And so literary fiction uh, also makes us, engage in these same kind of critical, emotional, um, intellectual processes. And that's why a number of studies recently that I talk about a little bit in the book um, show that literary fiction increases Hmm. empathy. And it's because we're practicing the same kinds of skills that we do in real life. It's, you know, for judging, making a judgment about a character's decision, that's really no different than making a judgment about a real person's decision. We're assessing and analyzing and evaluating uh, in the same way. One of the reasons I asked that is because we have a, a writing curriculum that we do, um, that we create. And it, we work with a lot of middle school, like seventh, eighth, and ninth graders is kind of the sweet spot that most people use it. And one of the things that we do in it is we ask kids to, cre- like they learn how to create, create a thesis and all that. And they do that by asking whether they create an issue out of the question of whether a character or historical figure or someone should have done what they did. So should Achilles have, you know, stopped fighting or should, um, you know, often people will write about like, should Frodo taken the ring or whatever it is. And so there's been some discussion about whether or not we should ask children to, to, um, make an attempt at assessing Judge. a decision that a character is making. So. You mean there's an argument uh, against well, doing so we'll, that? We basically what well, we're not trying to, we don't tell kids <laughs> you have to choose what side you have to choose. Like we want them to be thinking about it. We want them mm-hmm. to be thinking about both sides of it. In fact, right, they're not right. allowed to, to choose a side until they have thought about both sides. So they have to say, what are the affirmative reasons and mm-hmm. what are the negative reasons? And they have to think through it. And then they have to make a decision and then the case right. for the decision that they make. My theory is that, you know, even an eighth grader, by thinking about something like that, can, can the literature itself is going to become, the book itself is going to become unpacked, even for an eighth grader by thinking about that. Like you right, in Huckleberry right, Finn, you talk about... Right how basically it's a book about Huck trying to decide what he's going to do with Jim and how can you, so I'm, right. I, I, what I can't figure out, that's how you can possibly think about literature unless you're thinking about, you're trying to make a judgment about the decision the character does. <laughs> right. I agree. Like you're going along with them and you're thinking, you know, I mean, it's, it's, in this way, even right, film yeah. is the same way, right? You're saying, oh no, don't yeah, do yeah. that. Don't do, oh yes, do that. Well, that's, I mean, that's, well, that's what Aristotle was talking about in poetics. <laughs> Right, right. I mean, Aristotle in Poetics talks about, um, you know, the civic value that drama has because it Mm. trains the emotions um, by inducing feelings of fear and pity that then experience a catharsis, you know, at the resolution. Um, That's like training your emotions so that you can experience these things vicariously uh, as a sort of practice so that you can train and control Mm. those things in Mm. real life. Yeah, like like the vicarious experience of characters making good or bad decisions can cultivate virtues in you. Um, Right. I mean, this, this is why I, in, I, in booked, I talk about this, like the, the, the book that changed my life more than any other one um, is, (laughs) Oh God. Um, Yeah. It's Mm. it's Madame Bovary, which I read uh, as a sophomore in college. And I um, had never, I, I, 
I didn't know that I was so infected by romanticism, which I mean, I was, you know, 19. <laughs> so of course I was, but, um, when I read that novel, I understood what romanticism was, um, you know, romantic worldview and recognized in myself the, the same kinds of, I was on the same track as Emma Bovary. It was making of wanting my not, life to be like some trashy romance novel. Um, and it just like over, it just changed, it changed my life instantly. I just recognized myself and said, wow, that is a bad path to go down. And I, I don't want to be caught up in these romantic flights of fantasy. I want to enjoy real life, real people, you know, no matter you know, just, just re real life. I want to enjoy what's here in front of me, not be pining away for some, something that doesn't exist. Um, and so that's the book that. So do you think you mentioned life. that you, the last question you would ask is ask a student how they feel about it. Would you say that in asking quite that kind of question that it gets in the way of the sort of, I don't know, self-assessment that you're, that you're mentioning there when with that you experienced with Madame Bovary? Yeah, I hadn't made that connection, but I, but I think so. I, and, and, and maybe it's not as, I mean, I think we often use the word feel instead of right, think. Right. Um, so, you know, so sometimes it's just as simple a, an error as that. But I do think, you know, speaking of the whole mean between extremes and, and so forth, I mean, we, we live in an age that is still, you know, overly tainted by romanticism. Um, and so, and romanticism, you know, it has its an idealism have a place. But I think I see myself as like looking at the errors our culture is making and trying to make a correction in the other direction. And so I think as we recognize the errors our culture is particularly prone to, and it's not just in literature. I mean, movies, you know, follow your heart, yeah. your feelings, Matt, you know, follow your feelings or whatever. We know that that's a prevailing um, cultural vice and so i think when we recognize what those prevailing cultural vices are then we just simply have to work to push them away in the other direction and so uh, it's not that there is no place to talk about our feelings or how literature makes us feel but we just need to be aware that that's a tendency that our culture has uh is to focus too much on that instead of just sort of the you know analyzing uh the the way things work, analyzing, you know, the way a work of literature works, how it works that way. I mean, if we can have our students thinking about, um, if, if we are talking about their feelings or its effect on them, how that effect is achieved, then that's where I think we can help them be prepared to face social media, fake news, um, demagoguery, you know, without in the real world, when we start talking about the way things work and, and, and the, the way things, uh, the way works of literature or other um, cultural artifacts achieve mm. their effects on us. Well, we've gone for almost an hour. So um, this has been fun. I've got a couple of final questions for you. Um, was there, have there, um, has there been a book that you've read as an adult that was kind of a great book or, you know, quote, great book that, um, that, that took you by surprise? Um, yeah, I, I would say, I mean, there have been a number of them. Um, but the one that comes most recently to mind because I read it in the past year is 
um, a book and I can't, I cannot remember the author's name. She's a new Irish writer is, um, spill, simmer, let's see, spill, simmer, falter, wither. Mm. And it's a story. And and those words are sort of plays on spring, summer, Mm. fall, winter. Um, and it's a story told from the point of view of a mentally disabled man. Um, and he's the entire time speaking to his dog. And it is just, uh, just, it just stunned me. It stunned me. I didn't know anything about it. Someone recommended it. I thought, oh, it's, got, it's about a dog. Okay, that looks good. Um, it was just so beautiful and poignant um, engaging. There's kind of like a, you know, a story that we don't know the whole, you know, sort of a mystery, um, that unfolds, but it's just this idea of using second person from this kind of limited, very limited perspective, talking written? to a dog. Is it newer? Um, uh, it's, yeah, within the past few years. And I just read it in the past year. It's, um, just so beautiful. And it, it really, you know, I, you know, this is sort of the, the bus man's holiday, right? Um, you know, when you teach literature and write about it, it can sometimes, you know, I still love reading, but yeah. it's, it's my work. And so some of that magic is harder to, 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 to yeah. conjure up. Right. And so that was a book that I just, this, this that book reminded me of why I fell in love with reading as a little girl. It so was just you, since you stunning. mentioned the difficulty of recreating that, that magic, aside from, you know, a book like that, that occasionally pops up, is there something outside of your discipline that you, that you turn to that, um, does conjure up that magic still? I mean, is it movies or theater or something like that? I, I do love great films, um, just very well done films, um, you know, because I, they have to be artful um, and good. Uh, the, probably a recent one I saw that did that for me is oh, The yeah. Florida Project. Um, just uh, an amazing, just a beautiful, beautiful film and just so moving and powerful. Um, and an old favorite that does that is, uh, is, uh, mm-hmm. the tree of life, the movie. which is just, yeah. uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, so I, I do love good. Okay, films. So here's my last question. I, I, I don't know exactly why I saved this, this topic for the end, but, um, some of our listeners will know that you were in a pretty significant accident back in May. Um, and you've been going through some, significant recovery since then. And I'm curious if there are any, you know, speaking of maybe conjuring up that magic, if there's any books that helped have helped you, I don't know, get through that. If that's the way of putting it, I don't, I don't know if you really, that had helped you um, mm-hmm. given some encouragement and conjured up some of that magic as you've been, you know, unable to walk and going through physical therapy and all the, the really, um, difficult things that you've been going through the last few months? Well, this is the true answer. It's not like a a little trick or ploy, but you know, I had just written a book on virtue before this happened and I thought I understood virtue and then the accident happened. Um, And what really happened in the, especially in those first few days in the hospital is because, because I had really literally just finished the final edits on my manuscript, um, you know, weeks, a few weeks before I had been, um, emailing with some people about things in the book. 
And so I had very much on my mind, um, I'd been emailing specifically with, with someone about uh, the chapter on love, which centers on um, Tolstoy's The Death of Ivan Ilyich. And in that story, he's dying um, and in great pain and undergoing all the indignities of death, um, which are talked about in some detail, uh, which I had to go through. I wasn't dying, but I still had to go through some of the indignities. And uh, and and it, the story is about Yvonne, the lack of love in Yvonne's life through most of it. And then the one person who shows him true love as he's dying and suffering. And that book was just in my mind. And I just, and I, I kept thinking about how I had written about this in a very theoretical way. Um, but now I was experiencing some of this pain and suffering. I mean, I had, you know, it's all relative and I had never, I've never been in that much pain and suffering. So this is the most I'd ever been in. Um, and so drawing on that and, and feeling the love that I was surrounded with because I was so overwhelmed with so much love from family and friends and strangers across the world. It was overwhelming and so powerful. Um, and then also the chapter that I wrote on patience and patience is literally the virtue of bearing suffering. Well, <laughs> so I was suffering so much and all I could think about is, okay, I am being given the opportunity to practice the virtue of patience and to bear this suffering as well as I can. Um, and so it was just a, a crazy thing to have been, have, recently written about these things in theory and then being called to practice them in such a dramatic the and real way. Here so, is never write a book about challenging um, things because it might end up that you have to live it out. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. That's exactly it. It's too late for me, but you, you still can take I'm just gonna keep to myself and keep all my, keep all my grand ideas to myself. If I never put it out in public, it won't matter. Um, well, did you, um, did you find that you were, you significantly changed some of those chapters after the accident? Like you were reflecting on things that then became parts of the book or was it pretty much done? Um, well, it was, it was, it was done. Um, but yeah, so there was, there was no changing them, but no, but what happened is I, I think it just changed me. And I, I mean, I do, I do think I got it right. I mean, I'd studied it. I had called on the masters and quoted the, yeah. you know, the experts. Um, but then I just got yeah. to actually experience well, it. Confirmation, so, I guess, yeah. right. You experienced it. Right. Well, thank you so much for <laughs> yeah. joining me here on the podcast and thank you for your book. I really, really enjoy it. Um, like I said, I'm going to, there's a couple books I need to go back and read or re or read for the first time or go back and reread, uh, in, you know, in collaboration, shall we say with your, with your essays on them. So I'm going to do that this fall. And I think, um, our listeners are really going to like it. Where should people, uh, where would you like for people to go to learn more about the book? What's the best place? Uh, the best place to start is my website, karenswallowprior.com. Uh, and you can always just, uh, there are links to the book there and you can always find me on Twitter. <laughs> I'm pretty much always on Twitter. So um, that's easy enough as well. Perfect. Well, again, thank you for joining me and um, thank you for the book. And I hope that you, I hope it's really successful and many, many people buy it and are, uh, I think, I think it's a book that can change people. So I, I hope that a lot of people buy it and thank you for writing it. Well, thank you. Thank you for those words and for having me on and having such a great conversation.
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.